Our reading tonight is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Good evening. Let me add my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here, and it's lovely to have you with us. I just want to take a couple of minutes to help us think through that reading from Matthew. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at it for a few minutes together. Our Father God, whether we're new to these things or familiar with them, please would you deepen our understanding of the truth. Amen. This is the time of year when they're putting together the end-of-year reviews, the, the usual mixture of comedy and serious, and I really pity the people trying to review 2019. I mean, there's not a lot of fun to be had. There's the, the, the famous gorilla double selfie. Um, I still do not believe that that is not people in costumes, but apparently it's genuine. That's about the only good thing. Get rid of it. It's, <laughs> that's about the only amusing thing they've got to look at. I mean... Actually, when you look out at our world at the end of this year, it doesn't look great. Politically, in this country, the news has been dominated by Brexit. Who had that down as within the first 30 seconds? Well done. Uh, again, again, how are we still talking about it? It's like the monster from one of those cheap horror movies that just refuses to die. It's just, I mean, how much longer is it going to go on? And of course, that means we have another general election. It really is the gift that keeps on giving. It's, and the politics around it has become so ugly and divisive. And we're quite fed up of the politics. Environmentally, we've been told we've, we've hit the point of no return. Coastal communities in a number of places around the world are already, we're told, being wiped out by rising sea levels. CO2 keeps on going up in the atmosphere, and the amount of forest cover to eat it up keeps on going down. Scientists are getting increasingly worried. Economically, no one really knows, but I haven't heard anybody sound particularly rosy about 2020 and beyond. And shockingly, we're hearing that uh, we're the first generation that's going to be less well-off than our parents for a very long time. Life expectancy in Britain has actually gone down in the last few years, report this week told us. Economics aren't a great place for hope. Socially, socially, we're not healthy. I mean, it's easy to, uh, to get fed up with the politicians and the divisive way they speak, but it was really striking. They did a load of interviews a little bit earlier last month with 
MPs who are standing down. Actually, it's about an average number of MPs standing down. But of the 18 female MPs who are standing down, every single one of them cited the abuse that they and their families were receiving on a daily basis as the dominant reason why they were getting out of politics. One prominent uh, shadow cabinet member said that on a daily basis, she receives between 100 and 1,000 abusive tweets. And she's just fed up with it all. Elsewhere in society, knife crime is now the highest level ever, 44,000 stabbings last year. Internationally, well, if you turn away from the headlights, the Rohingya Muslims, the Iraqi Kurds, the Syrian Christians, and all Yemenis are still suffering terribly with absolutely no end in sight. And it has to be said, even our own security looks a little bit less stable. The 70th anniversary of NATO was no great celebration of the strength of the alliance. And some of the playground antics, frankly, of the leaders doesn't give you great confidence that they're going to be able to forge strong bonds going forwards. Politically, socially, economically, militarily, things do feel a bit bleak at the end of this year. Many would say even hopeless. And of course, hope received its cruelest wound of all at the very end of our year, when a terrorist on license struck out at an event run by an organization that helps to rehabilitate criminals and murdered two people and stabbed a load more. And it seemed that the only consensus from our politicians in how on earth do you respond to the tragedy on London Bridge is, well, you make political capital out of it. It's a dark time at the end of this year, it has to be said. And it seems to me that there are two ways that we are tempted to respond when, when life feels quite hopeless. The first is cynicism. Now, we British are very, very good at this. We're not brilliant at many things, so we ought to celebrate things we're good at. I particularly enjoyed, did you see the, the election bus, uh, the Burger King? Another whopper on the side of a bus, must be an election. That is a great piece of advertising. You can buy other burgers after the service, but that is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And it's easy in a cynical culture to write off any talk of hope as just... Childish make-believe, wish fulfillment, pie in the sky. But the truth is, you need hope to live. Uh, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. We need hope. Everybody actually wants things to be better. Nobody doesn't want things to improve. I guess the other way we uh, respond is escapism. There was an article from the, the chief film editor in The, in the Guardian and he was um, arguing a couple of weeks ago that the, the, rise, uh, the recent return to, to popularity of, um, of musicals like La La Land and then uh, Rocket Man and things like that is because we just don't want to face up to reality. And so we want to, to retreat into escapist fantasy. It's why everybody is once again streaming Home Alone, The Holiday, and Love Actually at this time of year. We just, we just want to switch off into sweet fantasy. Of course, you don't have to go to the cinema or turn on your TV to do that because December is party season, which is the other way that we escape from reality. Do you know how much we Brits drink between Christmas Eve and New Year's Day? How many units of alcohol? Have a guess with the person next to you. What do you think? How many units between Christmas Eve and not you personally, the whole country? <laughs> do you want to know the answer? Do you want to know the answer? The answer is... 
The answer is, and I'll give you a free glass of mulled wine afterwards, which is mildly ironic. Um, the answer is six billion units. No, you didn't guess. Don't be ridiculous. Six billion units. And the only problem, the only problem with drowning away your sorrows, as so many of us do, is that you wake up the next morning to exactly the same world, only now you've got a headache. It just does not help. And into this world, into this world, the historical Christian story of Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ, is a message that speaks hope. Not hope as a, as a flickering candle that can easily be snuffed out, but hope as the glorious sunrise after a cold night. Real hope, solid hope, life-changing hope. And I want to show us three little things from uh, Matthew's account that we just had read to us about this hope uh, that I hope will excite you and give you hope this Christmas. Uh, it's hope for those who don't believe in fairy tales. It's hope that gets to the heart of the matter. And it's a hope you can trust in. Hope for those who don't believe in fairy tales. Now, we all know that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. And with the chronological snobbery of 21st century people, we look back and smile at the credulous simpletons who believed such a silly tale. Only when you read the account, that's, that's not how it turned out. Matthew's reliable eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. And we're told in halfway through the first chapter, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Turns out, Joseph had concentrated in biology lessons at school, and he knew that for a baby to be born, it required both a woman and a man. And if he wasn't the man... He was able to do the maths, and he wasn't buying the whole immaculate conception story either. He's an incredibly kind man, but he's not a credulous simpleton. He doesn't want Mary disgraced, so he has in mind to divorce her quietly, uh, presumably uh, so that people will assume that the baby was born early on in their marriage. What a kind man. But actually, the focus isn't, that I want us to have is not so much on his compassion, but his skepticism. You see, people back then didn't believe in virgin births either. And we're told in verse 20, but after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It takes an angel appearing in blazing glory in his dream to say, no, 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 just as I appeared to Mary, it is true. Kind of when a blazing angel appears, it tends to corroborate the story of divine involvement. And so Joseph is convinced. You see, it has never been part of the Christian message to deny that we live in a world of scientific constants. You see, actually, the Christian message only makes sense if we live in a world of science. The, the message of Christmas is not, we live in a magical world and virgins just pop out babies all over the place. No, the message of Christmas is we live in a world of order, a world where there are regulated scientific principles that govern how the universe runs, and virgins do not give birth is one of those principles. So when a virgin does give birth, it tells you that someone has intervened from outside who has power, authority, ability to interrupt the running of this universe. 
what we learn here is that right at the start, God intervened. If, if you think of our, our cosmos as a, as a great wheel that turns reliably, predictably, in an ordered fashion, he shoved a stick through the spokes and he intervened and he broke the rules that he himself had set up. This is not, this is not hope for the credulous. But why would God do that? Uh, what's the issue that's so serious that God would say, I'm going to intervene in human history. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to stop things and I'm going I'm to step in. We're told um, the answer, I think, really, in the two names that are given to the baby. And the first name tells us that God gets to the heart of the matter. Verse 21. Uh, so the angel says to Joseph, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. That's what it means. What's the most pressing issue facing our world today? How many here have read the manifestos of the three main political parties? Goodness, that's not many. It's, it's pretty easy to find. All you have to do is go onto Amazon and, and look for recent fiction, and you'll find the top three. <laughs> and I called you cynical. Uh, they, when you look through the manifestos, they're predictable, and they're admirable what they go for. Uh, funding for the NHS, policing and criminal justice, immigration reform, the economy, all the things that the three main parties say they want to sort out. We think, yeah, I'd like to see those things sorted out. But God doesn't go for any of those things. Do you see what he says in verse 21? He goes for sin. He says sin is the number one issue that needs tackling in this world. Sin is the thing that we need saving from, which is rather confusing for us because we think of sin as basically, it's a bit of overindulgence at the office Christmas party. Uh, and so we can't understand why God would get so excited. It's something to be winked at. But the Bible means something a little bit more serious than a predilection for too many mince pies or a bit of nonsense under the mistletoe or on the photocopier. The Bible means something much, much more serious. Let me explain. Um, last week, uh, actually two days ago, as, uh, as we were getting dressed in the morning, my wife pointed out to me in rather excited tones that there was water pouring down through the light fitting in the ceiling, which is less than ideal for any number of reasons. Um, but uh, I demonstrated my great DIY expertise by getting a bucket and placing the bucket under the water. I was very pleased with myself, and um, that was about as much as I could do. Uh, so I phoned a maintenance guy who came round, and he didn't bring a better bucket, uh, nor did he insulate the, the light fitting so that the electrics weren't at risk. He got out onto the roof to look for the source of the problem. And what he found was that the central gutter on the roof above our bedroom was full of moss and filth and crud. And so basically, any time uh, there'd been too much rain for a couple of weeks, our bathroom lights were going to double up as a tap. And until you clean the crud out, there was always going to be a problem. And when the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about the crud in our hearts. It's talking about the stuff that causes the leaks that we see. Uh, the selfishness, the greed, the self-absorption, the, the climbing over others to get ahead, the hatred, the bitterness, the envy, the prejudice against those who are different from us, and the indifference and lack of practical concern for those who are poor and marginalized. All those things are the leaks. But the thing that causes them, the crud in our hearts, that's what the Bible calls sin. And sin is at the root of all 
the stuff we do see as a problem in the world. Because what sin is fundamentally, according to the Bible, is a, a turning away from God. It's two fingers to God. And a turning away, actually, from other people and a turning in on myself. Sin is when I put me at the center of the universe. When I view me as the most important person. Social media enables us to do that like never before. I put myself on the pedestal. Now, doing that doesn't leave all, lead all of us to, um, to genocidal sprees, but it does lead all of us, all of us, to use others, to trample on others when they get in our way. Sin is what causes us to bring misery to others. And that's why the Bible says that when God intervened, God went for sin. You see, God doesn't send a teacher or a doctor or an economist or a political revolutionary because God is not interested so much in the symptoms as the disease that first Christmas. He sends a savior who'll deal with the sin, the sin that separates proud, rebellious people like me from a good God, a perfect God, a wise God, a loving God. How does Jesus do that? How does he save us? Well, the, the child born in the rough wooden manger becomes the man nailed to a rough wooden cross. And as Jesus died on the cross, he was taking upon himself the punishment due to us for our sin and for all the wicked acts that flow from it. He was absorbing the justice, the death that should be mine and yours. He died to break the power of sin over you. He died to restore you to a relationship with God, your creator. That's what God came to do that first Christmas. Not to provide us with a better bucket to deal with the drips. But finally, to clean the crud out from our hearts. That's the hope of Christmas. Thirdly, I hope you can trust. Now, there's a, we've got two little boys in our house who are rather excited about uh, the visit of Santa um, on, late on the 24th of December. And there are two parents in the house who are rather excited by the fact that I can threaten them with, Santa may not come if you keep misbehaving. It's wonderful. Parenting 101. It works. Trust me, it works. You'll be doing it. Don't laugh. The, the thing with Santa is it's not his presence they want. It's presents from him. They don't care whether Santa's there or not. They just want the stuff he brings. They don't want his presence, S-E-N-C-E. They want his presence, S-E-N-T-S. Come Christmas morning, they will not be asking, is Santa here? They'll be saying, what has Santa brought? And we're, most of us are like that, let's be honest. But sometimes, sometimes, actually, it's the presence of somebody with you that makes all the difference. Sometimes you need the person with you. Sometimes that's the game changer. Uh, back when I first moved to London, um, most of my friends couldn't afford to live in anything other than uh, what they called up-and-coming areas. High street crime, no Starbucks. And, uh, and I, I, distinctly remember, I distinctly remember one invitation to a, to a flat-warming party of a friend. Uh, back then, they sent around a carrier pigeon, and you unfurled the scroll. And uh, it read, uh, go to Te Kennington Tube Station, exit station, turn right, run. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the instructions. And I spent quite a lot of my time at weekends going to places where you just felt distinctly unsafe. You just did. Then last night uh, and this morning, watching the highlights of uh, Anthony Watson, uh, Anthony um, Joshua uh, finally recovering his heavyweight bout, I was thinking, you know, that would be quite useful just to have him with you. Imagine if he was your best mate. 
you, you kind of wouldn't run from any station with that unit wandering along with you. A six foot six, 17 stone of world heavyweight champion. There aren't many bits of London you'd feel nervous walking around. You think, yeah, that would make all the difference if he was with you. And the message of Christmas is someone great has come not to, not to leave presence with us, but to be present with us. Wonderfully, we read in the second name given to the baby why solid hope comes with Jesus. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not a man with a unique experience of God, uh, not a man with a, a unique insight about God, not a man with amazing ability to teach about God, but God himself with us. Fully God and yet somehow squeezed into a human body. The uncreated creator of the cosmos has taken on a human nature. It's an extraordinary promise. And that's what's so amazing about Christmas. God didn't interrupt history and interrupt science to, just to speak to us. He tore a hole in the fabric of the universe and he stepped in. He stepped in to be with us. It's amazing he didn't come to be against us. He came to be with us. Not on a state visit, but to join us, to live as one of us. As remarkable as that is to our minds, it is just what God's word had always said. That's why Matthew quotes from the old part of the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, and from the prophet Isaiah. And when you read through the Old Testament, you see God's saving work, when God's getting involved to do something uh, to save his people, it always seems to involve an unlikely birth. That, that's kind of his M.O., it's his theme music in the Old Testament. God is going to save. There's probably going to be some, somebody born in an unlikely way. And so in Isaiah's day, uh, the sign of hope for a beleaguered people terrified by Assyria in 700 BC was uh, the virgin or young girl, same word in Hebrew, would have a baby. And it would be a sign to them, this baby born, would be a sign to them that God was with them, that God would help them, that God would protect them. And so when 700 years later, a literal virgin has a baby, oh, Matthew and the others look around and realize, oh, the pattern throughout the Old Testament has reached its fulfillment. And this isn't just a sign that God is with us. This literally is God with us as a human baby, Jesus Christ. And that's why this is a message of hope that you can trust in. Not a pie-in-the-sky hope for those who are gullible enough to believe but the reality of God-guaranteed hope for our world. And the wonderful promise of Christmas for you and for me is that God has looked down and seen all that we have done to one another as a human race. He has seen how we've ignored him, our good and loving creator. And in spite of that, he did not come down as a warrior or a judge against us, but he came down as a savior for us, with us. And that hope, is held out to all of us tonight in the person of Jesus. Hope that there is something better, something better for our world and something better for you, for me personally. And it's a hope that's underwritten by God's power, not vain, oh, I hope it might happen, but hope that comes 
with God with us. A hope that even our darkest fears cannot snuff out. A hope that stands firm even in the face of death because Jesus has risen from the grave. I hope you and I can trust him. Saw just quite how incredible this hope was. A couple of months ago, um, the trial of Amber Geyer, who was an off-duty white cop who walked into the wrong apartment in her complex and shot dead uh, the black man who lived there, Botham Jean. And on October the 1st, she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 10 years. And Botham's brother, Brandt, was allowed to give the victim impact statement. Let me read out what he said. If you're truly sorry, I forgive. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die like my brother did, but I want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want. And the best would be for you to give your life to Christ. At this point, if you watch the video, uh, Amber, the, the convicted cop, is just streaming down with tears, sobbing. And Brant, the brother, asks the judge if he can have permission to get down from the witness stand and go across and give her a, a hug to comfort her. The woman who killed, murdered his brother. I mean, to be honest, it's so extreme, it sounds a bit ridiculous to us, and we just don't know what to make of it. You think that is, that's just unthinkable. But it also shows in concrete terms the difference, the hope, that Jesus Christ brings. When you have received from him the hope and the forgiveness that he gives of your sins taken away, where his reconciling, loving, forgiving power is released into your life, your friendships, your marriage, your family, your communities, a real hope. That is the hope our world so desperately needs. My urging to all of you this Christmas is look properly, deeply into the hope that Jesus offers. Find out more about him. Find out how real and transforming that hope is and see what a difference it makes to your eternal destiny and to your current reality. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the hope of Christmas. Thank you that to our troubled world, there is hope that we can trust in a scientific age. Hope that deals with the heart of the problem in getting rid of the crud of sin from our hearts. And hope that is robust because it comes with your mighty power, for you are with us. Amen.